Welcome to Dhamma on the Sidewalk, insights, interviews, and practical tips on the teachings of the Buddha for people of all walks of life, attuning, exploring, integrating the teachings in everyday life. Simple Dhamma for daily life, I'm Asoka, hosting Dhamma Capsule for people like you. Hello and welcome to Dhamma on the Sidewalk. This is episode number two. Today I have the pleasure to meet with Ajahn Asoko. Good afternoon, Ajahn. Good afternoon. Very pleased to have you with us. Ajahn has about 20 years of practice, if not a bit more than that. And in terms of um, the, the school, we speak about Vasa, which, which means we, uh, rains retreats, how many years of ordination. Uh, and Ajahn has, Ajahn Asoko has about 19 Vasa. So we currently are seated at, at Amaravati Buddhist Monastery in the UK. Ajahn, the idea I had to uh, converse with you this afternoon is there is a tendency in the general public to sometimes narrow down Buddhism to just mindfulness as well as considering the seated meditation practice as I would say the paramount uh, posture. So I'd like you maybe to start by talking a bit about mindfulness. How does it fit in the Buddhist teachings? And then maybe elaborate a bit on the four postures of meditation so as to clear the bush a bit on those two topics. Well, these days mindfulness is all the rage. It's very popular. You can find a lot of teachings and courses and uh, it is a very good introduction to the Buddha's teachings. Mindfulness really as a, as a word is kind of quite descriptive. It's about being fully here with the mind. And uh, a lot of mindfulness is taught without necessarily being labeled as Buddhist, which is useful in the sense that it opens it up and makes it accessible to people who may be averse to the religious package, mm-hmm. packaging. But in the in Buddhism, what the Buddhist the Buddha teaches suffering and the end of suffering. And mindfulness is really about developing mindfulness, is developing the ability to bring our attention to the present moment and learning to recognize what arises here and now in our experience, bodily and mentally. So that would mean thoughts, emotions, feeling in the body, yes, impatience, things like that. That's Sensei, what you mean. Yeah, what mm-hmm. the experience is of having a body, what it feels like, mm-hmm. and what goes through the present moment in consciousness in terms of feelings, happiness, pain, in terms of memories, in terms of thoughts, emotions, moods, really everything, physical or mental. And by mental, I don't mean thinking. It's just more kind of anything that's not physical in terms of our experience. Mm-hmm. So what does the practice mean, recognizing in the present moment I am experiencing feelings of anger or dissatisfaction? What do I do with them? What do we do with them? Well, we're used to seeing things in terms of a self. What, it does, what does it mean in terms of me? my body, my memories, my biography, my future and my dreams, my emotions, my views. And 
what the Buddha teaches us is all these things exist, but they're not personal. So he's encouraging us to look at the same experience, but from a different angle, where we're not looking at it in terms of self. It is what it is, but it's not personal. And that's a very different take on experience. And as we learn, if we trust the Buddha's teaching and we are feel encouraged to have a look at things the way he encourages us to, we discover that inevitably when we take things personally, it leads to suffering. And when we learn to take things as they are, recognize them as phenomena that arise and cease according to nature, we're able to let things be and not create suffering on top of whatever the experience may be. Now that might be a bit tricky for the unacquainted. So can you give um, maybe of a personal experience or some example on how, simple example of how this can be in practical, uh, novice, beginner's mind, person out there waiting for the tube, <laughs> well, uh, or going back example. home and being completely overwhelmed by the kind of day in corporate life or simple examples like this well, what would you suggest well the examples you give are good because they tend to bring us close to those emotions that we all mm. feel about, of, that we find life difficult sometimes irritating annoying mm. and so when we take annoyance personally we get upset with what we're experiencing the emotion itself is not a pleasant experience, but then we try to get rid of it. It's unpleasant. Mm. Mm. And so we either become annoyed and blame it on the outside world, or we can blame ourselves, or we try to get rid of it and repress the emotion. And neither, neither of those two ways of functioning, of following it or repressing right. it, actually help. They're just, we're just creating more suffering and more karma around yeah. these issues. The way to experience this in a way that would not be personal, that allows us to let it go, is recognizing that the conditions are this way and it feels annoying. And to recognize that the feeling of annoyance arises in consciousness. We can be aware of it, we can feel it in our body, in our minds, in our hearts. And if we're just willing to let it be, allow ourselves to experience it and let it cease, then it does cease. And once mm. it ceases, we haven't gotten, we haven't become involved with it. We've experienced it, let it come through consciousness and released it. Mm. And the experience of that cessation is what the Buddha is encouraging us to notice as peaceful. So what about recurrent emotions that keep coming back? I'm talking about emotions because that emotion can be a very broad term that encapsulates a lot of um, things that can arise during the day, and thoughts and uh, feelings as well, like anger can locate itself in, uh, in the body. But it seems to me that you're pointing out to where we can actually start practicing even when standing or laying down or being seated anytime. And that also that the Buddha seemed to not have given rules, but more like point, you're using this term quite frequently, to point at or to point to certain things rather than saying, doing it this way. You have to witness it by yourself. You have to observe it and investigate it. By, these are terms that come back quite often. So would you, would you elaborate a bit on this, please? Pointing mm -hmm. at and not being, get caught into this, this moment, but when we cannot go forward and we cannot go backwards, 
we need to get start going inside. And then when we start going inside, we realize that there's a lot there. So how, how what did the Buddha point at for that? Well, he has talked about formal practice as much as mindfulness and daily activities. And uh, when we talk about formal practice, we're talking about just taking some time aside from our usual activities and just connecting with the present moment. Now that, just as a general instruction, can be difficult to do. So there's a plethora of what we call meditation techniques, mm -hmm. which are really tools, skillful tools. Mm. And uh, what they're designed to do is to help us settle into the present moment as it is. And using the body is a very, very useful thing to do. It doesn't change as fast as thoughts or emotions, and yet we can relate to states of mind and emotions in the way the body feels. So it's very useful to come back to the body and just come back and check in with the body and ask ourselves, how does it feel right now? What posture is it in right now? And it's always a way of doing uh, just anchoring ourselves here and now in the present moment, coming back to something that's neutral, from which we can start looking at what we have in terms of emotions, of moods, of states of mind. And as we use these various tools uh, to just come back to the present, it allows sometimes, it, when we bring the attention to the body, it allows us to let go of whatever, whatever else attention is running after. Mm -hmm. It's a very good way of letting go of thinking, because mm -hmm. as an instruction, let go of thinking is difficult to do. Mm. But if we bring the attention to something else, well, we need to let go of whatever it was chasing after in order to come back to the body. So we use these four postures. Mm. Yes. So the Buddha talks the... about the four postures because basically we spend our whole lives in one of them, either of them, and we keep rotating between them. So it's... Ooh. Walking, standing, sitting, and lying down. Walking, standing, sitting, and lying down. And walking, you can include running. It's that kind of movement. But basically, we're always going from one to the other. So it's a useful way to use our relationship to the body in such a way that we're using it to develop this ability to place our attention on something of our choosing. So if we give ourselves the instruction, I want to be, I want to pay attention to what posture I'm in. Mm -hmm. Well, we get caught up in our activities, and then we can remember, oh, posture. What is it right now? It's sitting. And what does it feel like? And sometimes we have the time and the leisure to explore what sitting feels like. Other times we not, we don't, because we're caught up in business that requires our attention. We can still check in with the body, and never let the body too far out of our field of attention, a little bit like a mother who's raising a child who goes to the playground and starts conversing with another mother. She may have a conversation, but she'll never lose track of the little, mm. the little kid. And mm. what is, is it safe? Is it okay? Mm -hmm. So in that way, we check in with the body. And it's a way of just putting an anchor into the here and now in a way that we can go about our other activities, which tend to give rise to thoughts and emotions, bring up memories, generate, be the conditions for states of minds. Mm -hmm. And we can get caught up in those. But if we use the body and keep coming back to the body and check in with the body, then we're giving ourselves 
a kind of a refuge that we can keep coming back to, mm-hmm. which gives us stability. So that stability is what is going to give us the possibility to notice what is unstable. The stillness allows us to notice movement. So we have to take that position of the stillness to notice movement. Mm. We have to come to a position of stability to notice instability. So the body is very useful in that way. Right. So in that way, for instance, uh, there are some, some people who find it quite constrictive to and difficult to keep seated and they they force themselves in for instance which is very which is honorable to try to be having uh, stillness and seated meditation but they feel they might feel that at some point it doesn't have to do with how many hours and how many minutes I've been doing especially if I'm starting to feel pain and I feel like the body is getting very anxious to be constantly seated I'm talking about seated meditation and seated uh, trying to calm the emotion, trying to to observe the moment as it is and let let things settle a bit. So what would be a good way to to understand how what kind of practices suitable at what moment? Because the walking meditation is very different. If we are from what I have heard, and you might you might have other examples, is that if we have a person who tend to walk quite fast, the walking meditation is would be advised to try to go at a bit slower pace, things like that. Would you would you have some examples? Could you elaborate on that a bit? Well, the four postures are really a, a format of meditation to be explored mm-hmm. by each individual. Some people sit down and find it very pleasant. Others mm-hmm. sit down and feel restive and agitated and restless and they just want to get up. So we're not using the posture just for the sake of watching the body on its own. It's also going to reveal our relationship to what's happening in the mind. Mm-hmm. It comes as a package. Mm-hmm. So sometimes we may sit down and find it comfortable and enjoy it and watch the breath and feel peaceful. And other times we don't. We feel like we need to get up and move about and go and walk. Mm-hmm. So we can get up and go and walk and we can go to the traditional format of walking meditation which is on a path that's about 10 to 20 meters long, depending mm-hmm. on the individual. Mm-hmm. And we walk back and forth, stopping at each end, pausing, turning around, walking again, and generally using that to just connect with, say, how the feet feel when they touch the ground at each step. Good. But then we can have periods when we feel overwhelmed by certain emotions, and walking back and forth on a meditation path feels constrictive then we need to go and walk in the forest, up and down mountains. Mm-hmm. And basically, the whole point of it is to learn to use the body and the awareness of the body, and then that gives us an anchor mm-hmm. from which we can start noticing what's going on in the mind. Is the mind at peace, or is it agitated? Is it happy or suffering? Is it concentrated or scattered? And then we learn... To adapt the position, we have to investigate and be playful and be creative, be curious. If I feel this way, how does walking work for me? How does sitting work for me? And learn, it's a discovery, a process of discovery. So there is, there are a lot of instructions out there. Mm-hmm. None of those instructions apply for everybody the same way. Mm-hmm. So I'd encourage people to find instructions and the try best. them out and see how they work for them. The best way it works for them. And the 
measuring stick is does it is it conducive to stilling of the mind is it conducive to awakening to brightness in the mind and is it conducive to understanding suffering and the end of suffering and impermanence of conditioned phenomena how is it in in a very past past based way of life for instance the one we can have in london and what would be a way for someone who says okay no this is very very fine but i'm not not really having necessarily the time to do that in that way i'd like to have more ideas what do i actually do when i'm standing in the tube and i'm getting very impatient somebody's like smelling very bad next to me or have a very bad breath or smelling alcohol or things like that i'm getting very disturbed i'm noticing it how can it's possible to go beyond that that just noticing what happens beyond the noticing what happens beyond the noticing is the freedom from feeling constrained by our experience the way the buddha describes it is that our usual functioning is ignorant and we are experiencing things that give and they feel pleasant or unpleasant or a lot of things just feel neutral mm-hmm. and our reactions come out of that if it's pleasant we want it if it's unpleasant we don't want it so using these four postures for example standing in the tube and being confined in a tight space and cramped up close to people we don't want to be around mm-hmm. feels like this and so noticing the difference between it feels like this and i want to get away from here or it feels like this and i can open up to that and let it be and see how long that lasts how mm-hmm. much it disturbs me and how much space i can give it so it it is what it is but it doesn't disturb me i think this is one of the most difficult aspect for for the majority of people who are probably not not necessarily acquainted to doing this kind of work with the mind and the body and noticing the impermanence i mean this rising and ceasing uh, for those who you know who are living by 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 the dharma it seems like something quite quite normal to think or oh, everything will will find will will everything will come and rise and cease and everything impermanence is all it's a rule of the, of nature but for others it's not necessarily it's kind of tricky to notice that including for their own mind so i guess the important point would be noticing and learning to notice this, that these phenomena in the head could be depersonalized it's it's not it's about me but it's not about me it's something that happens at this very moment and i can be between brackets at peace with it move and then notice that maybe tomorrow it will be a completely different but that is one of the very main difficulty i guess for for everyone so this depersonalizing do you have any 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 tips for that it's it's an it's a non self it's a convention the buddha's teaching really is something to be explored mm-hmm. the buddha did not teach for the sake of people to take what he says as dogma believe it mm-hmm. and put it up on an altar and worship it he gave it to people as something to test out right so investigating our experience and taking the buddha's teachings just as a as a guidance of how to investigate because otherwise we can really go out in, out in every any direction the buddha gives us some very specific pointers mm-hmm. so learning to take those and figure out a way of 
comparing what he's talking about with our own experience. We don't really need to learn that much. We only need a little bit. And if we do take that to heart and start investigating our own experience of life, asking ourselves, well, how do I see it? How do I feel about it? And how mm -hmm. does the Buddha talk about it? And what's different? Mm -hmm. And his teaching is one that talks about suffering and what it is and the end of suffering. How do I perceive suffering? How do I define suffering? And we very quickly realize there is quite a gap between my views and the way the Buddha talks about it. So it's interesting to explore that. One of my favorite uh, quotes of the Buddhas is something we chant at funerals. Mm -hmm. And it is also something that uh, is very puts the teaching in a nutshell is that everything that is of the nature to arise is of the nature to cease. And in that cessation is peace. And it's very beautiful because we can be tempted to just take a teaching like impermanence and then just start slapping it onto everything as a yes. label. But that's an intellectual exercise right. it does not lead to wisdom it's just basically dismissing everything as impermanent when the buddha points to the fact that in cessation there's peace then that invites us to look at it and experience that peace so we need to notice that things are impermanent mm -hmm. notice the cessation and then taste the peace that is present once the disturbance it's a very important uh, reminder that you just gave us there that um, there's a ten there could be a tendency to think that in the Buddha's teaching is all by or the, the Buddhism in, in in general is assimilated to uh, nihilism that you know there is nothing everything's everything disappears anyway so we don't need to take care of it no indeed that's rather it's rather the opposite you take care of it and then we notice that it's impermanent that's where the the gem to be i would say investigated and can can start the that's where the practice starts if i may uh, say there is a, there is a, a very nice statement i would say made by one of our teachers in this tradition it's not just that it's like this meaning taking the things as they are but it's when starting this process of investigation trying to start listening to the thoughts as though they were stories told by someone else and then start noticing how there can be a silent, the silence in between two thoughts. Could you elaborate a bit on that? Yes, it does come back to the sound of silence. There is peace, doesn't it? Mm. If we notice, we, we tend to function from an assumption there's there's always stuff happening. Exactly. <laughs> and that's actually not the case, but we need to pay attention. We need someone to point out to us the fact that it's not constant. Suffering is not all the time. It arises and ceases. Mm -hmm. Thinking is not a permanent state of affair. Thoughts mm -hmm. arise and cease. And to pay attention to those parts between thoughts, the silence between the thoughts, the space between the objects in the room, and what does it feel like when things cease before something else starts? We're so accustomed to things that yes. we don't notice nothing. And yet nothing is also there, no thing. So to notice the absence of events. We usually re 
we keep busy and then when busyness stops we feel bored mm -hmm. that's what happens when the mind is just noticing things activities mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but if we stop and just watch out what boredom is actually boredom is very peaceful boredom is <laughs> we don't call it boredom then well then we, we call it the there's name. very little so it reminds me of uh, a say that goes when we stop doing we start being mm -hmm. and that that's maybe where one of the starting point of i would say a mindful practice starts how am i being noticing investigating that noticing having patience as well that things might not necessarily always turn out the way we wish them so what would you say about thinking in terms of suffering in people's minds suffering tends to be more uh, connected with very like either physical pain like i've injured myself or very big emotions such as grief, I've lost something, or my car got damaged, or anything. And um, well, suffering is can also be very, very subtle. That we create that on the thread of suffering and liberation from suffering. Where are we going? What, what what's what's the take there? It's there is no opposite to suffering, right? It's a thread. It's a path. The opposite comes from thinking. Uh -huh. Thinking is what differentiates and categorizes and separates. But in terms of Dhamma, just looking at when the Buddha talks about suffering, this Pali term dukkha, mm -hmm. translated into English as suffering, it, it is a bit heavy. It's sometimes. a bit narrow, right? Yeah. Yes. But it's really talking about the whole range of experiences that can right. go from a mild discontent and dissatisfaction to outright physical or mental suffering in some very intense experiences it covers the whole range mm -hmm. so it's really about exploring for a lot of people it may be kind of defining it as discontent discontent Dis not quite rightness yeah, yeah. <laughs> many ways to many ways to call it but it's kind of looking at that aspect of experience which is necessarily linked with desire wanting mm. it to be otherwise it's not we're not happy with the way it is. We'd like it to be otherwise. We'd like you to have it our way, at least not the way it is at the moment, but it right. is my way or another way, but not, not right there, not right now like this. Right. And so this points at as well as in terms of the, to come to, uh, to wrap it up a bit, our conversation. If the Buddha was on the street right now and I could ask him a question and say, what, what is this about? <laughs> say, my, what would he say? Oh, I don't know what the Buddha would say. <laughs> <laughs> but he left, he left so many teachings. He, he left did. the Dhamma. So how we can start entering by from the small door? Well, not knowing is a good point. Not to knowing. Start not knowing what's happening. Yeah, and if you don't know and you, are, you accept that that's your starting point, then you're open to look and learn. Mm hmm so what, Not is, what, is, what is happening? And then, then we're watching. Uh -huh. And then we can learn. Not knowing that we can control the reality. Not, not owning everything. everything. We're just passing by. Just passing by in this life. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Ajahn. I think this has been... Is there anything else you would like to share with us? 
before I we just go. encourage people to uh, investigate, not to be not to be afraid of experience, but just to investigate what's happening and be curious. And investigate with inwards. Inwards. Sometimes even that investigation can bring us to forgetting about being indulgent with ourselves, so not having too much. Well, that's fine. And investigate indulgence. Investigate whatever indulgence. is happening mm -hmm. to explore it rather than to get stuck with it. Thank you, Ajahn. You're welcome. Good afternoon. Thank you.